uh, I don't know whether you know or not, uh, a sobering milestone was passed without much notice on the 14th of January this year. Uh, two million people died worldwide from COVID-19. Uh, and since that time, around 15,000 people a day die due to COVID. Uh, in other news, uh, there is other news, just in case you weren't sure about that. Uh, there's widespread famine across much of Africa. It doesn't get reported much. Uh, conflict, climate change, natural disaster and COVID have all contributed to widespread famine. A UNICEF report this week said that more than 10 million children across the central band of Africa will suffer severe malnutrition this year as a result. 10 million children. Uh, it's statistics like that that cause lots of people, Christian and non-Christian alike, to ask questions like, does God see? Does God care? Is God doing anything about it? Does God see? Does God care? Is God doing anything about it? It's tempting, isn't it, when we see the sin, when we see the injustice, when we see the suffering all around us, and even as we experience it ourselves, to ask that question. What is God doing? We know with our heads that God is in charge of everything. We trust it, that that's true. But if we're honest, most of the time it doesn't look like that. It looks like God doesn't see, that he doesn't care, and that he's not doing anything. And so we're anxious, we're uncertain, we're weary. What we need to do, I suggest, is listen to the prophet Micah. His message in these first couple of chapters is that God sees all of the sin and all of the suffering. But not only that, he cares. But not only that, he's doing something about it. Who was Micah? Uh, Micah lived at a chaotic time in world history. It was around 730 BC when he began to prophesy. Assyria was the world superpower and they were threatening whoever they could reach. Uh, they'd already conquered the Arameans and the Philistines and Israel was next in their sights. Uh, and both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel were paying heavy tribute to Assyria to, to keep them at bay. Micah, well, he lived in the southern kingdom of Judah and his message to Judah was about what God was going to do to the northern kingdom, to Israel, to their brothers, how he was going to punish them using Assyria. But not only that, Judah was in God's sights as well. And so he says, verse 1 of chapter 2, follow it along with me in your Bibles, that would be great if you can. Uh, listen up everyone, he says in verse 2, God has a message for you. But don't just listen, verse 3, look, pay attention God is coming. From his dwelling place in heaven, he's coming down to get involved, to get his hands dirty. You thought he didn't see. You thought he didn't care. But he does. He's been patient with you. He's been slow to become angry, but no more. He's going to do something. And verse 4, when he does, the mountains will melt the valleys will be split apart. When God arrives, it'll be like a nuclear bomb exploding. And what's caused this? 
Verse 5, Jacob's transgression. In other words, the sin of the nation of Israel. And the big, ugly boil at the centre of Israel is their capital city, Samaria. Verse 7, Micah identifies their idolatry as what's so offensive to God. Worshipping, honouring other gods, even down to using temple prostitutes. God has done so much for them and they give the honour instead to another god. And so verse 6, God is going to make Samaria, that big ugly boil, a heap of rubble. And verse 7, its riches will be burned and destroyed. That's Micah's message. But there's no delight in it for Micah. There's no joy that that Judah's neighbour and brother is suffering. Verse 8, Micah's response is to weep and wail to go barefoot and naked, howling like a jackal, moaning like an owl. That may all be metaphor, but he may have actually been literally doing it as he delivered his message. You can be thankful I don't do that when I preach. He was walking around town in hysterics. Why? Why was he so upset? because of the inescapable certainty of the judgment that was coming. Look at verse 9. Her wound is incurable. The prognosis is terminal. Do you mourn like Micah at the sin in our society? Does its blindness and ignorance and hopelessness Does it draw out compassion from you? Do you despair at the injustice and the pain and the greed and the racism and the oppression? Or do you gloat and judge? Do you live towards those around you with a better-than-thou isolationism? Do you dismiss with a self-righteous harshness or perhaps what's worse you just ignore it unfortunately that's often the reputation the Christian church has and often with some justification to our shame we ignore or we judge may our love for our neighbour produce a godly sorrow like that of Micah Well, back to Micah. He's despairing at the fate of Israel. But it's even worse. It's not just Israel. The sickness is contagious. It's not just terminal. It's contagious. Verse 9, it's come to Judah. It's reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself, says Micah. And then from verse 10 to 16, Micah wants the rest of Judah to join in with his despair, with his mourning. Verses 10 to 16, he names a number of towns in Judah and he describes the suffering that's coming to each. Now, we miss the cleverness in English, but in Hebrew, he's basically telling a whole lot of dad jokes. He's using puns on what the names mean or what the names sound like to describe what will happen in those towns. So verse 10, the town of Beth Orphrah, which means house of dust, It'll be as a sign of mourning 
that town will roll in the dust. They're the town of dust, but they're going to be rolling in the dust. Verse 11, the town of Beth Ezel, which means the house of taking away. Your protection will be taken away. You'll be defenceless. And there's more of them from verses 12 to 15. And if you've got a Bible, like a study Bible, there'll be footnotes that tell you what each of those names mean. And you can connect them up with the despair that's coming to each of them. So there's despair everywhere. Why will it happen? Verse 12, it's coming from the Lord, not just over there across the border, it's coming to the gate of Jerusalem. What will it be like? Verse 15 says there'll be a conqueror, it'll be a foreign nation. And verse 16, they're to mourn because they'll go into exile. So what had Judah done wrong? Why was God deciding to come down from heaven and bring judgment using a foreign nation take them into exile. What have they done wrong? Well, let's move into chapter 2. There's something rotten at the core of Jewish society. Verse 1. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. The haves plotting to take advantage of the have-nots. They lie awake at night making their plans. Not about how they can make the world a better place. Not about how they can relieve suffering or bring to pass God's plans of justice and peace and mercy. No. They plot about how they can take from those who have less than them. So they can have even more. Why do they do it? Do they do do it because they need more fields and houses? No, they do it simply because they can. They have the power to do it. Sound familiar? This is not specific to, to Israel, is it? It's been the same in almost every society since the dawn of time. Whoever has the power uses it for their personal gain. Kings and dictators amass power and wealth for their own use. Countries invade other countries because they can. Every military coup, every uprising by the people, brings down one autocratic abuser and replaces them with a new system that they promise will be different. This time will be different. But before long, a new tyrant takes the place of the old one. And they begin their own plan of taking from the have-nots. It doesn't matter what the system is, left or right, kingdom or republic, capitalism or communism. The problem is not the system. The problem is the sin of the human heart. Interestingly, if you look through world history, you, you look at the exceptions to this, What countries are not doing this? It's those that are influenced by Jesus. Jesus, the servant king, who didn't come to be served but to serve. Good leaders in these countries are those that serve rather than exploit those under them, whether kings or politicians. 
It's Christian countries who send their armies to defend the weak rather than to exploit them. But that wasn't Judah in the time of Micah. It's the powerful plotting evil against the weak. What will happen? Well, verse 3, God will plot evil against them. Plot, same words used, evil is used. There'll be some justice in this. God will plot evil against them. God sees, God cares, God's doing something. And the powerful will be powerless to save themselves. They had power to take from the poor, but they'll be powerless in the face of God's disaster. They'll be humbled. Verse 5, the land and possessions they trusted in will be stripped away. It's one of the lessons the powerful have been forced to learn during the pandemic. We've all been forced to learn it, haven't we? Those of us in the first world, in the middle class, those of us who are used to freedoms, who think we have power, Money buys options. Money can normally buy us choice and options, but we've had to learn that it doesn't matter how much money you have, it can't guarantee your health. It won't let you travel where you want or give you the freedoms that you want. The powerful are powerless in the face of some things and certainly in the face of God. That's the bad news Micah delivers to the privileged and powerful Your power is useless and God is calling you to account. Well, uh, how's the message? How is that message received? Well, like most bad news, it's not received well. Uh, From verse 6 of chapter 2, Micah describes what the other prophets are saying about him. Uh, The prophets the people prefer to listen to, who who brings uh, the the ear-tickling message, the comfortable message. Verse 6, have a look at it. Do not prophesy, their prophets say to Micah. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. In other words, don't listen to him. He's got it all wrong. God won't bring judgment. He's not angry. And the people choose which message they prefer. They're complacent. They're comfortable. They like those bits in God's word which speak about doing good but they're ignoring the bits that talk about the covenant requirements, the warnings for disobedience. But of course you can't pick and choose like that, can you? You can't choose which bits of God's word you like. You've got to take it all. So verse 7, Micah responds with some truth about God's requirements. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? The false prophets, they're dismissive, they're cynical about Micah's warnings and Micah's saying you shouldn't be like that. They're claiming one thing about God's promises, that he's not angry, that he'll do good to everybody irrespective of their behaviour, but Micah wants to correct them. Look at verse 7b. Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright. That's who God's promises of good apply to, to him whose ways are upright. And that's not the people of Judah. Verse 8, there's more evidence of how they're not upright, how rotten the society is. Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. I don't need to send an enemy, you're eating yourselves up. 
You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Who needs a foreign enemy? You're doing it to yourselves. More examples of the haves taking from the have-nots. They're literally taking the clothes off the backs of the people who can't afford afford it. Even though in Exodus 22, God commands the people to care for their poor, he commands that robes taken as security on a loan are to be returned at sunset. He commands that vulnerable widows are to be protected, not exploited. You see, God cares about how we treat the vulnerable. It doesn't matter whether it was the Old Testament back then or today. God cares about how we treat the vulnerable. God's nature is to lift up the broken and the humble, to bring down the proud and the powerful. We ought to have that same compassion and priority. His kingdom is about bringing down the proud and powerful and lifting up the broken and humble. And so verse 10, God delivers his verdict. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it's defiled, it's ruined beyond all remedy. God's plan was that his land, his promised land, would be a place of rest, of justice, of peace, where the characteristics of God himself and his kingdom would be demonstrated and lived out. But instead his people had ruined it. They were destroying themselves. They were ignoring God, ignoring his commands. There was no justice, no rest, no peace. There was no cure. And they'll be removed from the land. Michael warned it. And God once again was slow to become angry, but it turned out that way in history. It took 140 years. 587 BC, though, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. The temple was razed to the ground. And the Jews were exiled to Babylon, just as God had promised. God sees. God cares. And God's doing something about it. Well, that's the bad news. Hopefully you're, you're feeling not too squashed down and uh, into the pews. But the chapter finishes on a glimmer of good news, so you can sit up straight again. There's a couple of verses here at the end that put a bit of a, a sparkle back in our eyes. There's a glimpse of a different future. It's like a beam of brilliant sunshine piercing through the, the dark clouds of the first two chapters. In fact, in in the three sermons in Micah, chapter 1 and 2 begins with, listen, and it finishes with uh, some good news. And the next sermon begins with, listen, and finishes with some good news, and the same with the third sermon. So it's very easy uh, for, for me to work out what to preach on, because Micah's told me which bits, how to break it up. And here we get a glimmer of good news. Here's a different response from God. And it's one that flows most naturally and most easily from his character. Because it's what he loves to do. Yes, God is angry. God is punishing. 
but his character is that he's slow to become angry. He's not easily provoked. His natural character is to be compassionate and gracious. And when he gets angry, eventually it runs out of steam quickly. But instead he abounds in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to thousands of generations, forgiving sin. And Micah wants to bring us that good news, at least for some. God can't wait to show compassion and forgiveness. Have a look at verse 12. God promises, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Now, there are two big ideas here, themes that run through the Bible, like veins of gold, uh, the faithful remnant, and, and the idea of God as a shepherd king. So firstly, the faithful remnant. All the way through the Bible, God calls himself a faithful subset out of everybody. Uh, He chooses one son, but not another. He chooses one family out of sinful humanity. He chooses a faithful minority, a faithful remnant, out of a faithless nation. And that's what he does at the end of the exile. Seventy years later, Judah is in Babylon God promises that he is going to bring them out and restore them. Many will be destroyed over that period, but there will be some who are protected. And God is promising that as their shepherd king, he'll seek out his sheep and he'll rescue them. He'll break down the gate that locks them in and then he'll lead them out At the the head of the procession, he'll lead them back to his land and they'll be united and protected and at peace under his care. That's the way it turned out in history, at least a shadow of that, if not uh, the full reality. Uh, The people returned from exile. Uh, Cyrus said, King Cyrus of Persia uh, said, head on back rebuild your your temple and your city walls. Uh, You can read about it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the people did. It was a miracle. Uh, They returned and they rebuilt the walls and they rebuilt the temple. And at least for a while, there was some sort of peace. But they never fully lived with God as their shepherd king. The kingdom of Israel, that, that... Uh, that was there was just a shadow of what God's kingdom was meant to be. Cyrus sent them back and Cyrus and the nation of Persia ruled over them. Uh, They weren't in charge of their own destiny. And then Greece came on and conquered Persia and then Greece ruled over them and then Rome came along and Rome ruled over them. And within Israel, that the same problems of greed and self-centeredness and injustice remain. Uh, 
until Jesus came. And Jesus goes through Israel and he takes on himself God's own job description to be Israel's shepherd king. This job description that he describes here in Micah. Jesus grabs it and he says, that's me. Flip over in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to finish there. John chapter 10. In verse 11, Jesus says to the crowd who are listening, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And just like Micah, Jesus rebukes the false shepherds, the leaders of his day, the privileged and the powerful, who were meant to be shepherds, who cared for the sheep, but instead were abusing them. A few verses earlier on, John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Can you pick up the echoes of what God promises in Micah chapter 2? Jesus is saying he's the shepherd king. He goes through the gate, he breaks open the gate and he brings out his people and he leads them and they follow him because they know his voice. Now in the first instance, Jesus is calling Israel to listen to his voice. He's calling Israel back to God's commands to live out obedience and justice and mercy and compassion and generosity. To live out God's kingdom in the promised land. A few verses further on, down in verse 9, he, he describes what that could look like. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He'll come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's calling whoever will listen to be saved to be part of the faithful remnant who hear his voice and follow it. It's a call to whoever. It's a call that rings out across history and through time, not just to Israel who heard his voice, but to any who listen to his voice. In fact, he says down in verse 16 that there are other sheep who are not in this sheep pen who he has to go and gather. So he's talking to us. And Jesus' call is that when we follow his voice, we'll be saved. We'll be saved from God's judgment. We'll be saved from a life without him. We'll be saved into a life of finding pasture and abundance in this life. But I don't want to stop there because Micah would say, well, hang on a minute. It's not just about you and God. Don't forget society. You've got greater responsibility, a greater responsibility than just you and God. Jesus is not just promising an individual abundance. As we listen to his voice, 
as we follow our shepherd king who protects and lays down his life for his sheep, we should do the same. We're to look after the weak. We're to protect the vulnerable. We're to share our our abundance with the poor. We're to speak up for those who don't have a voice. Just as an example, this Australia Day, we've got the opportunity to think about how we've treated Indigenous Australians. Common Grace is a Christian organisation who encourages Christians to pursue justice. They've they've organised an event called Change the Heart. It's a prayer uh, church service led by our Aboriginal Christian brothers and sisters Uh, It's on Monday evening, tomorrow night, 7.30. You can watch it online, on TV, listen on radio. It'll be an opportunity to think, to pray for, to set our hearts on uh, how uh, we can be encouraging our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, how we can be uh, praying that God's kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray. May we be people who point those who don't know the voice of Jesus, to our shepherd, our good shepherd, the one who lays down his life and saves them, the only one who can bring them life to the full. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we can pray that. Please help us to live out that. We can't pray it unless we're willing to do it. Help us to have your heart for the weak and the broken and the frail around us. Help us to see, help us to care, and help us to do something about it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.